freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hey, culminators. Thank you for joining us once again. Today, we're going to talk about what everybody's talking about. And I'm even going to put this recording ahead on the queue ahead uh, of all kinds of famous and exciting people whose interviews can wait because this is a hot news story. It's about Ukraine. And as I was saying before we uh, started officially recording, my guest Irina Zuckerman came to came into my mind when I was thinking to myself, after Jeremy said we should we should probably deal with Ukraine. It has to be topical. I always say it's got to be we've got to find some way to get it into the topic here. And I said to myself, well, my angle on this, I mean, I'm not any kind of international relations specialist. I last studied it in college during the Cold War. But someone who understands something about international relations, human rights issues, um, Russia, former Soviet Union, maybe even Ukraine, and new media. And somehow, my former blogger friend, I don't think she's blogging anymore, I, I hardly am, Irina Zuckerman, a lawyer in Brooklyn, my old neighborhood, Brighton Beach, unless you change your, move your office, because I see you all over the place doing all kinds of international relations things, often focusing on the Middle East. But welcome, Irina. Thank you very much on short notice for joining us and culminating, hopefully clarifying some things about what the heck is going on in Ukraine now. Thank you so much, and uh, thank you for inviting me. So maybe you can give uh, the audience a little bit of a sense of your background uh, and why it is that you accepted this invitation, because being a level-headed professional, you wouldn't, you're not like me who would just be prepared to talk about anything that anyone asks them about. You're, you're a more serious person. So explain why you do know what you're talking about. Uh, well, I was born in the Soviet Union, in Ukraine, in uh, Kharkiv, which is the second largest uh, city in Ukraine. Uh, for a brief period of time, uh, the Soviets had made it um, the capital of Ukraine, but uh, it, it hasn't mostly been. Uh, it was also once the capital of Ukraine's industry, in particular, uh, the defense industry. Uh, we left Kharkiv uh, when I was 10 in 1995. Um, since then, uh, I uh, studied in the United States, graduated from uh, Fordham University, uh, where I studied international relations in Middle East, actually. Uh, when I, then I went to Fordham Law School and I focused on criminal and national security law, uh, practice just uh, run of the mill legal issues in private practice for a few years, and then ended up getting involved in human rights issues as a, first as a lawyer and also later on the media side. As a result, I got increasingly involved in geopolitical and security uh, issues and became uh, started to specialize on information 
uh, wars on internet information warfare. Uh, a few years ago, I started uh, getting involved with a group called um, CARP, uh, basically character assassination and reputational uh, management program at George Mason University. It's an international gathering of experts um, in issues related to uh, that area, reputational management, character assassination. It's an interdisciplinary uh, specialty bringing together academics and practitioners from uh, journalistic and media communications backgrounds, as well as lawyers such as myself um, and various other uh, specialists uh, in academic as well as practical studies, politics, uh, social sciences, you name it. Um, who've developed an integrated approach of bridging the gap between a practice of crisis management and reputational attacks and political spheres and, um, and the academic study in this area, which is only starting to emerge and become more uh, prominent, particularly in, uh, in the West. Until recently in academic field, these studies have been relegated to the area of um, psychological warfare in the military academies and so forth. It's becoming a little bit more mainstream uh, due to cancel culture, due to political scandals of various sorts. I've written a number of academic um, uh, papers, but I'm also a consultant. Uh, I have my own practice. Uh, I have my own uh, media and security consulting company uh, called Scarab Rising. This is one of the things that we do. I'm also, I also have my own online uh, website, which does podcasts as well as publishes articles called The Washington Outsider. Uh, we frequently tackle niche topics such as political scandals and the intelligence-related leaks and things of that nature that are not generally well covered in the media. So a result, as a result of these combined experiences, I've developed uh, insight into the modern information warfare as it is practiced and then uh, working to bring the academic insights that I'm learning to the field of practice to help practitioners in the field. That's a heck of a good answer. It seems to me that we're already involved in this war, deeply involved in this war, uh, if, it's, if, if you consider it the information war. And in fact, it, it might even be argued that the United States is the notwithstanding the, the horrors of the people that the Kharkiv are going through, um, is the main battlefield. You, let's take a, let's, before we get into what's going on now, let's take a step back to four or five years. Ukraine has had an outsized role in American politics in the last, you know, in the last half a decade, hasn't it? Unfortunately, it has become one of those wedge issues uh, where millions of regular people have been largely forgotten in favor of political scandals, corruption issues, and uh, uh, associations with the US political leadership and their internal battles. So explain a little bit about what you mean when you say that, if you can. Uh, we've okay. had a number of officials uh, in the past administrations who've been on both sides, by the way, who've been accused of corrupt uh, links to Ukrainian companies and, and governments. Um, 
uh, actually a lot of this started with the Obama administration who had been accused of unfair meddling in Ukrainian politics and support of the Orange Revolution there. Others claim that while uh, his support may have been legitimate because the government at the time uh, was extremely pro-Russian, brutal, utterly corrupt, and uh, the people couldn't wait to get rid of it and would not have been easily able to do so without some level of assistance. Uh, the real problem came later when it became clear that Obama had been playing both sides of the aisle there, that he had allowed Russia uh, to meddle, that some of his own ex-officials and, and various democratic operatives became entangled with other with the consequent government uh, there and essentially uh, engaged in the equivalent of war profiteering in the political sense. Um, wow. And the uh, same similar charges were le um, leveled around Trump's uh, close circles, uh, who because some of them were also allegedly connected to um, uh, to some of these uh, practices. There was an ongoing uh, scandal re regarding the firing of a prosecutor who was allegedly investigating untoward doings, but the prosecutor himself was uh, supposedly corrupt and pro-Russian. And the biggest uh, scandal culminating um, this uh, ignoble uh, line of political meddling and, and allegations um, involved President uh, Biden and his family and close circles. And of course, the uh, uh, we are seeing some of the play out in other countries as well, with China, with Hunter Biden, and all of that. Some of the uh, people, such as uh, Tony Podesta, who were involved in some of these scandals, are now also lobbying for China. All of that raised questions about dark money, about uh, your, uh, fire violations, so a few people went to jail for to prison for uh, for some violations. Um, others never did. And it Ukraine itself and its legitimate political concerns became secondary to these uh, accusations of uh, political corruptions and arguments whether or not Trump was uh, being you know unfair to the democratic operatives and to the government and the other way around. President Zelensky. Uh, the new, the relatively new president who came to power after many of these events had already transpired, was unfairly put in a position of having to deal with this political mess and facing pressure by both Democrats and Republicans. We shouldn't forget Hillary Clinton, of course. She was Tony Podesta's uh, pro uh, basically protector and uh, her links to this whole scandal uh, there are legitimate reasons for to be involved in Ukraine. It's a country filled with uh, many natural resources, raw materials that are of interest to the United States, but none of these important geopolitical uh, issues uh, have been really discussed. All of it focused entirely on these uh, political, on the, on the airing of political dirty laundry, unfortunately. Yes, and that goes right to your expertise on the issue of, of, of political character assassination because what we saw was this, this phenomenal, and as an old cold warrior such as myself, it was mind boggling to watch this happen, where there was this uh, five year effort to associate Trump 
with Putin, as we say in English, as if, in a, in a, you know, as, as if anyone, it, it was like McCarthyism, except that we don't, there was no communism and there was also no particular basis for it. Was, do you understand that there were Ukrainians or that there was a Ukrainian um, element to, the, to that character assassination about Trump, the whole Putin stuff? Or, or was that just wish casting by conservatives? Um, essentially, it wasn't so much Ukraine itself as the particular companies linked to the previous, again, not to be confused with the current government, previous administration and the Poroshenko government, which was uh, fairly aligned with the United States, but also fairly corrupt. And where Trump was considered, pro-Trump pro circles were, for whatever reason, considered closer and sympathetic to Russia. Um, unfortunately, people tend to uh, stereotype and put in very, very diverse political operatives in the, kind of the same box. Um, there are there were people like Stephen, like Steve Bannon and that whole crew that no doubt had their share of comments um, sympathetic to uh, Russia's government, but um, most others uh, saw Putin for who he, for who he was in the uh, Trump administration uh, levied sanctions against uh, Nord Stream. They were fairly tough on Russia, even if President Trump's own commentary did not always reflect that. Uh, so we're talking about actions, not just uh, words and um, that sort of craziness. Uh, Ukraine, there were a number, as I said, of officials affiliated with the, with the Democrats, particularly the Hillary Clinton camp, who were linked to corrupt Burisma-related uh, affairs, some as lobbyists, some as board members, uh, some of the board members were arguably not qualified or linked uh, to be in that position. And all of that was used to, to try to claim that, uh, to show that uh, the Democrats attacking Trump were hypocrites. They were attacking Trump while covering up their own dirty business and their corruption. Unfortunately, again, as an unintended consequence, of that political battle, Ukraine was used to show, to make it seem like the entire Ukrainian government was complicit and that there was some political arrangement, um, some could quo of uh, covering, uh, of, of, uh, of Ukraine government meddling in US affairs. Uh, the reality is Hillary Clinton's camp did try to use various political angles to go after Trump, but and the, many of the Ukrainian lobbies were in fact closer to the Democrats for obvious reasons, but there was no equivalent meddling by Ukraine itself in US political affairs as by Russia's uh, President Putin and his uh, troll factories. It's not that's, an equivalent. Ah, that's a, okay. So you, you just came on to my next point mm -hmm. and, and I'm gonna pair it with a point that will bring us up to 2022. The Russian troll factories, the Russian bots, we were sold this bill of goods that might've had a lot of truth to it, which was that there was this tremendous psychological uh, uh, PSYOP that had been um, 
rolled out of the Kremlin, whereby American public opinion was to be manipulated through social media. And Facebook, as much as said that they detected this and that they, they actually didn't do enough to stop it. Um, and supposedly this, this influence, this, intel this brilliant manipulation of social media was so profound that it actually affected the 2016 election. Now we're in 2022 and there's all this moral ambiguity out there for anyone who actually will make some kind of effort not to see the world in black and white terms, which is almost nobody on Twitter, I, I agree. But the Russians and Putin in particular are taking a shellacking. They're getting killed. If they have power to manipulate social media, what would it be like if they didn't have that power? Alternatively, maybe they don't have that power at all. It seems to me that whatever grievances or rationalizations Putin might have for what he's doing, he's not, he is, he and, and, and the Russian government have failed miserably at, at having any kind of effect on Western opinion about the, the legitimacy of what they're doing. Is it just because what they're doing is just so bad that there's no getting around it? I, I, because if it was China, I don't think any, I, you know, I think he'd be, be a much easier sale because he'd have the whole NBA on, they'd have the whole NBA on their side. Tell me, what do you think about my juxtaposition? Why is Putin so failing in the public relations war? Well, China is an argu an arguably far more powerful uh, and far more um, well-positioned geopolitically actor than Russia. It has far more influence and its economy is far more integrated with the United States and that of other Western countries. But definitely uh, the U.S., uh, California is heavily dependent on China. And um, there is a great deal of conflict of interest just financially, not to mention politically. Uh, Russia has a tiny GDP. It's actually less than that of uh, the average income is, is, is a fraction of an average income from uh, in Texas. And its GDP is actually less than, smaller than Texas. Uh, so it's not a big economy. It's easy to isolate. It's not heavily dependent uh, on the financial. It's not heavily integrated in the financial institutions in the US and simply doesn't do a lot of the activity. And the population is also a fraction of China's, uh, even though it's, it's a pretty big population. It's not a small country at all, uh, population-wise. Uh, that said, I wouldn't say that Putin has failed completely. He had overreached arguably in recent months, the invasion of Ukraine in that particular form had been obviously a, a significant miscalculation. He just went too far, but he was able to get away with everything else up until that point. And had he not been so brazen about it, maybe he would have gotten away with even with that as well, as he had gotten away with the invasions of Georgia, Moldova, his uh, uh, annexation of Crimea and his uh, brutal actions in Syria, not to mention his own um, repression of, of the Russian population and uh, assorted criminal activity, assassin attempted assassinations of, uh, of former agents uh, around the world, assassination of the opposition inside the country and so many other things. As far as the manipulation of public opinion, um, you're correct, the two factors were not enough, uh, clearly not enough to sway um, the public in favor of any specific candidate. The effect, the cumulative Russian 
uh, active measures did have, however, is to create a more sympathetic image of Putin himself inside uh, both uh, Democrat and conservative camps specifically. I would say, again, the Steve Bannon hardcore followers, not all conservatives, certainly. Not everybody was fooled by his uh, fake uh, defender of uh, conservative or Christian values agenda. Most people see him for the KGB uh, thug that he is, who has been not respectable, respect, um, uh, did not respect religions and uh, quite frankly, uh, sided with Islamists and used them, uh, whether with Iran or the Chechen Islamists or others, whenever it suited his purposes. A completely cynical, corrupt character who is essentially thrives on using polarizations, divisions, skepticism to uh, to uh, to plant conspiracy theories and to uh, and to feed off these divisions and manipulate opinion based on them. He's infiltrated BLM, uh, to, uh, so he did not just go for the conservatives. He also um, similarly manipulated the public opinion on the Democrat side on social issues in the United States. None of that, these methods I knew, by the way, they all harken back to the Soviet uh, KGB, uh, KGB operations. And uh, KGB was particularly good at these operations simply because as a poor country, the Soviet Union was not really capable of competing with the Western countries economically, the way China, for instance, can even though China also suffers from all sorts of economic issues, but at the very least, it's a much larger state and they've invested intelligently. The Soviet Union did not invest in countries, they invested not even in spying so much as in planting conspiracy theories. And we are seeing the same methods work today with climate change, with the racial divisions, racial cards, and of course, with glorifying Putin and portraying him as some sort of a response to a woke culture, which, by the way, was also planted by the Russians and by the Soviet Union and exploited. So there's a lot going, there's a lot going on here and, you, and you're illuminating a lot. And, you know, I spoke with James Lindsay uh, last year in, in this podcast, and he, he explained about how uh, once, once the the Communist Party um, realized that economics would never be a successful wedge issue in the United States, that they identified racial strife as the wedge issue that would and could work, and, uh, and academia as the ideal place to focus on fomenting, uh, you know, a, a Marxist approach to race relations in the United States, which is, you know, exactly what BLM, as well as critical race theory, uh, enunciate. And your, your incredibly important point here is that Putin plays both sides. I mean, he, it, it's the old KGB model of basically tr trying to undermine institutions in the United, you know, in, 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 your, in, in, the, in the rival countries, rather than just competing because it's easier to destroy than to build. As you pointed out at the beginning of our interview, though, of course, the United States has its own history of undermining 
what you know whether officially or unofficially through the through the corrupt political culture what it certainly you we were talking about ukraine i don't know how much of that there has been with respect to the putin re regime I would, I, but one thing i somewhat i was i was on a show yesterday um and we were talking about what what was Putin's goal here? And I said, I don't think there was necessarily a well-defined goal. It was an opportunity to take advantage of an obvious power vacuum because the, the Obama's, the Obama foreign policy thrust, which is, and this is Obama's third term, is to actually create power vacuums where the United States once had influence or hegemony, which is, ex it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's literally a definition of subversion. Um, and to just exploit it, in other words, whatever is bad for America is good for Putin's Russia because it gives him more options. It gives him more flexibility. It gives him more wealth because he, he's one of the, it's not the richest man in the world. He's one of the richest men in the world. He gets a percentage of everything that happens in Russia. Is what do you what do you think? In other words, I, I my guess was he thought this would go very quickly and very easily, notwithstanding that almost every Russian or Soviet leader who has ever attacked a smaller country has made the mistake of thinking that and been wrong. Japan, Finland, uh, it the Russians don't actually tend to win these things or they win them at an incredibly outsized cost, but they underestimate, they, they despise their enemies. They make strategic mistakes based on an underappreciation of how hard people will fight for their own territory, notwithstanding the World War II experience of, of the Soviet Union. And he thought it would, it would be a week in and out. He would get a certain amount of territory and maybe access to, you know, more warm water ports, you know, my, my, my geo strategy is, is not so strong. That's a very long way of asking you, Arena, what do you think the, the, the goal was a month ago? Putin's goal the entire time has been one and the same, uh, which is to reunite former uh, portions of the Russian empire. Uh, he would have preferred to do so peacefully. By peaceful, I mean by getting rid of the government and skipping the war. That was not his first attempt. The Western media did not cover it, but a couple of months back, there was an attempted coup in Ukraine that was reported by the official sources, but it never went anywhere um, in the US media or any media for that matter, which to me was shocking. Uh, it was, that's, that was a clear indication of an external actor's involvement, quite possibly. And that question was never raised. Oh, there was an internal coup and who cares? And uh, but to me, this was a clear red flag, and sure enough, when that failed, we saw that uh, Putin then went the direction of outright aggression. I've recently written an article why Putin thought he could get away with that, and the reason was very simple. He knew that Biden, first of all, showed signs of weakness in Afghanistan and everywhere around the world, but more importantly, he was obsessed with the Iran deal, with, with achieving Iran deal to the exclusion of every other priority. And he needed Russia's and China's 
help because Iran has been playing its games for over a year with no signs of budging, despite all the unilateral concessions that the administration has made. Russia essentially has been dictating its terms in Iran. Russia and Iran, going back to the days of Soviet Union, had a very complicated relationship uh, where the Soviet government was essentially instructing uh, the post-Islamic revolutionary regime, but there was no love lost. Iran and Russia have always been geopolitical competitors, rivals. They, on the people-to-people -people level, they don't get on very well, but the government benefited from, Russia, from the Soviet involvement tremendously, even though the line of going back to the 80s was neither east nor west. It's not strictly speaking true. Some of the current regime apparatchiks were rumored to have been Soviet um, agents at the time. And following the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Iran continued that relationship. And Russia actually, on some issues, has come out on top in recent years, years we can see the Caspian Sea divisions where Russia managed to outplay Iran. And so in terms of the um, current negotiations in Vienna, Russia has been playing uh, a top level role. It has been dictating its terms to both Iran and to uh, the United States and uh, European countries involved in these talks. And uh, it was natural that Biden would think of trying to use Russia to get Iran to sign off on something, however symbolic, just to save his image before his uh, own base and have some major accomplishment, political accomplishment before the midterms. Now, we are seeing how that's playing out at a huge cost. We are hearing all sorts of scandalous allegations about the terms of the deal that Rob Mali is pushing. Uh, but I find it entirely plausible to think that Biden could have chosen to, to close his eyes towards uh, Russia's ambitions in Ukraine. I think both of them were expecting this to be a very short affair to end quickly, for Zelensky to flee at first signs of danger, and for the country to peacefully collapse and be taken over some pro-Russian government to be put in place with minimal casualties. And that's was a huge mistake on everyone's part. So let's talk about Zelensky. He's, he is a fascinating character. Um, he, he seems to be very media savvy. Uh, he's young, he's good looking. Um, he's been caught or his supporters have been caught in some misinformation, sending around pictures of him in fatigues and whatnot that have nothing to do with this conflict that are a couple of years old or whatever. Um, but do you think he's playing his cards right in terms of the, the information war? I think he's doing a tremendous job. First of all, people tend to underestimate him because they think, oh, it's some comedian actor clown. First of all, the, the guy is a civil engineer, education-wise. He's not someone uneducated, a stupid second. We forget about President Reagan, who was a B-movie actor and became one of the US greatest presidents. Um, so that is silly and, uh, you know, these boosting of the pre president's image during the war with some pictures, it's mild, it doesn't, you know, harm anybody, it's pretty just standard 
sort of thing that you can expect from anybody in that situation. Much more interesting is uh, the victories Ukraine as a country has been scoring on that front uh rather than engaging in counter trolling on social media and trying to recreate russia's own information warfare strategy with the disinformation they've been doing exactly the opposite they've been actually fighting disinformation in a very effective way for instance by putting up websites and hotlines uh, to inform russian families about their sons who are missing in action or have been captured or killed or injured in the in the battlefield are uh, something that putin has been trying to cover up to the point that up until recently he claimed there were zero um uh, people killed which is not even plausible but consider that even the so many of the soldiers themselves were disinformed about where they were going uh, it, it's unfortunately uh, is panning out as true and we should remember that Putin did the same thing in Crimea and was never called out for it. He covered up the deaths of the of the soldiers and made all sorts of justifications. The families were later, some of them were quietly uh, restituted for the deaths, uh, but we're told to keep their mouths shut. So, so this, the fact that that can even happen I think it brings up an important point that, I, that I've tried to make a, couple, make a couple of times, which is that Putin is a strong man. He's an authoritarian. He is a gangster, but he is, he's not Stalin. He cannot control information and he doesn't have an absolute clamp on political power and dissent the way Stalin did. He, he, People think, well, he can do whatever he wants, and there's no downside to it. And they, they don't even necessarily appreciate that the Afghanistan war, which was still during the Soviet period, had a destructive effect on the Soviet regime, which was not Stalinist, but which still far more authoritarian in terms of information management. I mean, the fact that people can even get access to such websites or such hotlines in Russia today tells you that it's it's not that kind of dictatorship. I disagree because uh, having sophisticated skills in, in gaining access to information uh, and the fact that it's very difficult to close, uh, short of shutting down the internet completely, uh, doesn't mean that he's not aspiring to do that. He shut off two of the main outlets focused on alternative discourse, shall we say, the Echo of Moscow and uh, Rain. Uh, the, just the other day, for the last few years, Rain in particular had been relocated to a basement subterranean existence. Uh, it was popular among the, uh, the cultural elites, uh, but they, those are relatively small in number. And quite frankly, I think Putin discovered uh, that disinformation and manipulation of information work much better than cutting off the information completely and creating the forbidden fruit effect that we have seen uh, during the Soviet era when more people flocked to Western uh, literature and some is that and listening to US uh, stations, the Voice of America and so forth, uh, Radio Free Europe or whatever, uh, then had they uh, probably opened it up but filled it with uh, their own propaganda. So a lot of, there is apparently still a lot of support based on disinformation for what Putin is doing 
uh, he has been using his ministry to quote unquote educate and enlighten um the people about the necessity of liberating ukraine he has been um, for decades propagating the uh, that ukraine is responsible for war crimes against ethnic russians and uh, he has just been uh, manipulating uh, even the results on the internet and propagating this image that um, that us hates russia that us is looking for an opportunity to attack and victimize russia in whatever ways that uh, it can and that ukraine is you know an enemy and so forth uh, whereas the countries are very close, there are many Ukrainians living in Russia and vice versa. Uh, these are two people who are constantly intermarrying, literally there are many families of mixed backgrounds. So this is a kind of insane, but it's yeah, I, not. I saw, I saw a fascinating map last night, maybe I can pull it up during our, the, the next mo moment or so, where so, someone demonstrate, you know, we, we again, we have this tendency to want to see things in black and white terms. Mm -hmm. Ukraine good, Russia bad. And in fact, there is no Ukraine that is truly not, that is black to Russia's white. Russia and Ukraine have been connected and mixed together, well, forever. And certainly for everyone's lifetime, who's alive now. And there are also there there are different groups. There are different ethnic groups and cultural divisions within Ukraine. Some of whom are much more Russia friendly than others. Correct? Yeah, I would say though I would say that. But we have to remember, from political culturally, I would say absolutely, even linguistically. But from a political perspective, it is no longer the case. We have seen that President Zelensky, who is very anti-Putin specifically, has been elected by 73% of the country, including in those pro-Russian areas, which just tells you uh -huh. that they, while they maybe have some cultural affinity for the Russian language and culture, they do not want to be part of Russia, nor most of them are looking to move there or have tried to do so, uh, even on, when, when, under less you know, successful administrations. Uh, uh, pre-existing to that russia is not a model of you know of uh, economic prosperity that anyone would necessarily abandon their own homeland for and their heavy-handed methods i turn off even for people who would normally be more sympathetic to some of these cultural arguments Karina, you have been tremendous tremendously informative and i i like the fact that you have schooled me a couple of times in the last few questions. And that's why that's how we learn. I, I really appreciate it. And what do you think? What do you think happens next? Is there any way for before we end? You know, is there any way for Putin to get out of this? To get out of this alive, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that he's going to live a long time. But in other words, he, he this isn't what he was hoping for. He's getting hemmed in. He's taken gigantic steps backwards in terms of relations. Um, he's going to have to depend more on China now, which is also never more than an arm's length. China is you know, not Russia's friend. They've been he, they've become codependent on each other in terms of political right. support and legitimacy. But China has played this whole thing very 
cleverly from its it showed early support, open support uh, for encouraging uh, Putin to take steps of aggression. But once the invasion was actually done, it backed off. It did not openly uh, support Putin, probably realizing that it, it is now in an advantageous position and that uh, Putin will need China to bail him out. Now, how can he really bail them out? Um, so far, Russia does have significant military superiority to Ukrainians, even with all the new stingers and javelins and the fighting spirit and so forth. And the fact that Russia has not used its air force to the optimal degree for a variety of reasons. Nevertheless, they simply have more planes and they simply have more power and they're simply a lot of, uh, it's a big concentration of fighters. That doesn't mean that they will be able to hold their power for a very long time. It's very unlikely actually, but so far it, uh, the chance, chances are they'll be able to take to acquire and take by force at least some of the territory in Ukraine before Ukraine manages to liberate itself sooner or later. And all sorts of things can happen that we're currently not predicting. Nobody was predicting that the West would suddenly disrupt uh, Russia certainly was not, uh, no one was predicting that Japan would actually join the West in disrupting uh, Russia. No one was predicting the sort of debate that became quite heated the level of outrage uh, and the fact that increasingly there is pressure on Biden to sanction the energy sector, which would absolutely undermine everything Putin is doing. But until all of that happens, uh, Putin does have some leverage to play around. And so far as he appears to be victorious, he can still salvage his image uh, and appear to be you know, even though it's, uh, his image has been weakened by his inability to bring Ukraine down quickly, so far as he appears to be holding on to some territory there, he can still sell uh, that uh, image of a strong leader to his own base and to, he, to, the, to the FSB security people, the oligarchs, and so forth. So far, he has been relegated to having to rule exclusively to fear that is not a good position to be in people think that being dictate, a dictator is great it's not if you do not have any level of popular support you become increasingly isolated paranoid and it's you end up being backed into a corner from which there is no getting out so unless putin figures out how to handle his own population no matter what happens in ukraine doesn't down the road politically he will not meet a good uh, end sooner or later uh, how long that's, that will take, no one knows. That will involve, that will have to involve Ukraine uh, receiving some form of additional assistance from somebody in some capacity. They simply have to change their military calculus in some way, whether by producing their own weapons, acquiring them from somewhere, getting some assistance, getting more mercenaries, who knows. But uh, some something has got to change. Either Russia has to crack on one end and the uh, People need to uh, start surrendering even more so than they've already been doing, or Ukraine has to uh, increase its own capabilities or some combination of both. But Putin thinks he can still make it, and it's not un completely unreasonable for him to think about that, at least in the short term, because Ukraine is under tremendous stress, and the West has not been as helpful 
as it could be. NATO has been very hands-off, even uh, going back on its promise to deliver fighter jets that Ukraine desperately needs. It remains to be seen whether they can get them from somewhere else, whether this dynamic will change with time, and whether the West will have will continue to uh, try to apply the sanctions. So far, they have not been applied fully. Major banks have been exempted. Um, Russia has been able to look to the Arab world and to China and uh, in terms of uh, financial uh, backup to this uh, situation with the banks being under sanctions and the run on the banks and, and the currency crisis. But the, down the road, I don't think Putin has a political future. I think at this point, it's desperation based on that one big miscalculation thinking that he could take the country easily and hold it. That was not going to happen. And he completely misjudged Zelensky and his intentions. Well, you just said something that you alluded to a couple minutes ago, which was that you, you have questions about Putin's own political future. All right, so that's something we would never have said about Stalin, right? He, he, he they were afraid to call a doctor when he dropped, when he was uh, uh, dying of a stroke because they thought he, if he recovered, he would punish whoever it was who saw him well, uh, desperately on the floor. What could happen to Putin in the in the in Russia? What, what what's the scenario where he could lose power? Well, Stalin. That's the funny thing about Stalin. People claim it was a stroke, but there's a very good chance that the stroke was induced by artificial means. In other words, that he was poisoned. Putin yes, yes, very, probably by Beria. Probably by Beria. Putin could very well meet the same end. Uh, alternatively, he could simply be forced out of power and just, you know, forced to resign or else. Uh, so far, he has been able to prevail uh, by an image of fear. We have seen him humiliating the head of his external intelligence publicly on air. Uh, uh, but but we are not sure whether the military apparatus uh, that so far has proven to be relatively weak and corrupt, by the way, will ultimately take that for long. He has also angered a lot of the oligarchs who uh, who lost a lot as a result of all this, and he does not seem to have a plan how to recover that money. There's no backup plan for Russia on how to get out of the sanctions. So while they may be able to hold on to Ukraine for some period of time, to gain a full um, benefit of Ukraine's natural resources, uh, that's not likely going to happen so long as Russia itself is under sanctions for the same reasons. Immediately, these markets um, of, uh, of gas and so forth, they will likely be sanctioned to some capacity. Um, yes, so far, Europe is still buying energy, but we have seen an unusual shift. Germany specifically came out and claimed that it wants to buy gas from the United States. It's unclear how that's going to happen given Biden's own position, but Biden may lose power in two years and may lose significant leverage this year with the, with, with Congress uh, flips. So a lot of things are already going on for Putin. Uh, even in the most optimal scenario that he is able to take Kiev, get rid of Zelensky by force, install his own people, that government is not going to be seen as legitimate. It will face the same level of sanctions from the same countries as Russia itself. It's not going to be a huge advantage and it's not going to make up for it. And, you know, even, and Iran is also not a full solution and China itself 
is not a reliable ally in the sense that China sees Russia as an inferior junior partner that it needs just to have somebody working for with you at the UN and international institutions, but does not need uh, uh, economically. Uh, China is looking to take over portions of Russia and has been doing so naturally, peacefully, because Russia is unable to control those lands economically. It has they are underdeveloped, empty, and uh, abandoned, essentially. So China has a lot of leverage over Russia. I think at the end of the day, the best case scenario for Putin, he will end up being as a semi-puppet of China um, and doing China's bidding. And that's probably the best he can hope for. And in the worst case scenario, he will either be killed or forced to abdicate and you know live a life of uh, humility with his billions <laughs> and his uh, billions and ill-begotten wealth. But um, I don't see a very positive outcome. Uh, he just overplayed his hand and wow. alienated too many people. Irina, fantastic analysis. Thank you so much for coming on. I hope we do this again soon. Thank you so much. It was an honor and a pleasure. Same here. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.